Figuring out how to successfully scale a brand is easier said than done. But if you're interested in some advice on how to do it, you're in the right place because next up is the author of Ramping Your Brand. This is Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hassel-Kelchner, helping you see business issues hiding in plain view that matter to your bottom line. Welcome to Business Confidential Now. I'm your host, Hannah Hassel-Kelchner, and today's special guest is Dr. James Richardson. He's an expert in early-stage consumer packaged goods brands, the founder of Premium Growth Solutions, and a professionally trained cultural anthropologist turned business strategist who's helped household brands owned by companies you're familiar with, such as General Mills, Kraft Foods, and Frito-Lay, to mention a few. As I said at the beginning, James is also the author of the book, Ramping Your Brand, How to Ride the Killer CPG Growth Curve. It's a number one bestseller in the business consulting section of Amazon. And so I'm really delighted to have him join us today. Welcome to Business Confidential Now, James. Thanks, Hannah, for having me. You know, your background in anthropology, the study of human behavior, no doubt gives you some really unique insights into consumer preferences and decision-making that is really invaluable when it comes to developing a brand, and especially in successfully scaling a brand. How hard is it to successfully scale a brand for those of us, those mere mortals, who don't have the benefit of your training in anthropology? Well, if you're just really rich, you might get lucky. (laughs) (laughs) But the reason I wrote the book was for the 99% of people who aren't sitting on $20 million. And they have to build their their food or beverage brand or their beauty brand from nothing with seed money. And the way that that has worked for people like Dan Lebetsky, who founded Kind Bar, and others, is that you have to build a business that connects with specific kinds of human behavior. And the the kind that I focus on in my book and that I became an expert in in my career was habituation to new brands. Tell me more about that. There are some famous business authors like Daniel Pink who've written about habit and habit formation. And behavioral economics has talked a lot about that. In the world that I work in, which again is basically everything sold at Target, (laughs) <laughs> those are those hundreds of categories that we all buy. Habits form very differently based on the category in play. And so once you start to get your head into the into the data and you actually talk with people, you realize that there's an enormous amount of variation in how habits form from category to category. And this is usually where people's head starts to explode <laughs> <laughs> as a founder, because as a founder, founders are what I call in my book category geeks. They have geeked out in their little world. We'll call it like fitness nutrition bars. We'll just use that as an example. And so they're geeked out. Maybe there's some fitness endurance athlete. Maybe they're a mini celebrity. Um, you know, So they develop their perfect bar, and they believe that the world now needs to eat it, right? So they're the true innovators out there, which they innovate without any business context initially. They just don't care, right? Now they want to go and get everyone to eat it. And that's when the business strikes. But they didn't start with a business background, most of them. So the challenge and the challenge I I focus on continually every day with my clients is how to get them to think about the end user first with every single decision they do in the business. And those are the brands that actually tend to scale, the ones that are operated that way. 
when you talk to the founders, when you look at executional moves that they make in the market, that's usually the operating culture. It's a consumer-centric operating culture. Um, it's not just a passionate person who's invented the next great nutrition bar and then hires a sales team. <laughs> so, so the if you I mean they're out there. If you build it, they won't necessarily come unless you do your some serious homework. Does that sound right? Yeah, it's worse than that. Even if you get on the shelves of Target and Walmart, they may not come in. Aha. Uh-huh. So what and factors will, go and into you can, it? And you will you will quietly buy back the inventory and skulk away. Well, <laughs> well, we don't want to do that. We want to successfully scale a brand. So uh, help me out here, James. What what factors uh, so, need to come into play to make that a reality? So the folks that succeed, they find a way to modernize a category. In food, it's usually an ingredient formulation tweak. And it can be very subtle. I mean, it may just be raising the fat grams really high. It could be lowering the sugar grams. Not wild and crazy stuff. But if that tweak or if that modernization in the formula allows you in, say, something like food to suddenly connect culturally to a dietary outcome that has mass interest, and then you can back that up with an approach to going to the marketplace that makes your brand essentially what we would call cool on the evening news, you get sort of the formula that Kindbar generated, which Kindbar is not a very innovative product. I think that a lot of people think that the magic of getting someone to adopt a new brand in consumer packaged goods is, is about wild and crazy complex innovation, and it rarely is. There could be some complexity under the hood, but you don't want to introduce any of that to us, the consumers, because we have no appetite for it. <laughs> We're not interested in reading a dissertation on why we should have a nutrition bar. We just want to quickly look at a package look at some symbols, and then our brain will make the connection. And usually the brands that do well, there's like no conscious awareness of the signaling process. And that's actually what I spent a lot of time studying is what are the symbols on the pack? What do they mean unconsciously? And it's those unconscious meanings. Once they start getting generated, if you can pick them up in marketing and amplify them, things really take off. It's easier said than done. But the one thing you have to do is you actually have to be willing to launch your product and not assume that you understand it. <laughs> That's a really hard one. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, especially to, for the founder, that this is their baby, and they think they know everything about it, and they really, they really don't. What are some of the best practices associated with successfully scaling a brand? So the first thing that that I that you need to figure out is what is the um, your early fans who buy you regularly, assuming that you've actually created them. The first thing you have to do is you have to talk to them and you have to open yourself up to the possibility that the reason you created the brand or the business has nothing to do with why they like it. So my favorite example is mission-driven founders. There are a lot of them. They want to solve climate change, sustainability issues, you name it. Very rarely is that a primary driver that scales a consumer brand. Almost never. <laughs> this can be proven. <laughs> um, but the founder maybe care about it a lot. Right. right. Those are the folks who really they get in front of them need to listen to their fan, explain to them why they use their product and why they decided to replace another one with it. That's even more important. Right. And then you can get stories of how they actually use the product, what it means to them. But more importantly, what is that outcome you're trying to get from it? And that's when people and every time I do this with clients, there's often a aha, like, oh, well, we did this. We created it for this reason. But 
our fans are telling us that, you know, it's a weight management tool. <laughs> and what you have to do is you have to find the consumer groups. It doesn't matter if they're a big percentage of your consumer base early on, but the consumer groups who like you because of a, what marketers will call a mass market consumer benefit that they believe your product is the next great thing. So weight management is the one I talk about in my book because it's the one that scales businesses the fastest. If you can connect to that with an innovation in food or beverage and you can operate successfully, you can grow very quickly. There's other areas and benefits that you can use as well. But what happens with innovators in, in consumer package goods, they tend to be so geeky that they really they designed it for themselves. They designed it for this tiny group of geeks and often they designed it for a consumer benefit that's that's not mass market at all, Hannah. It's literally just for the geeks. In the world of nutrition, something like anti-inflammatory eating, that's been around for like since the 70s. If you talk to the right people in California, <laughs> they've always been there. <laughs> they've always been in LA and they can't grow the audience because no one cares. Well, it's not sexy. <laughs> no, it's depressing. It's sort of like, it's sort of like the people who try to um, raise money to solve world hunger. It's not that easy because it's the most depressing topic you could possibly have, right? And it's not even clear what the solutions are. You know, wounded warriors, however, can raise great money very quickly because the problem is really easy to understand and the solution is really easy, especially if it's something for your leg or your arm because you're a, you're a paraplegic, right? So it's a very simple solution um, and it feels good to do. So what happens with a lot of founders is that they fail to learn from their consumers what that big benefit really is and then they fail to market it um, or they actually spend money i've seen this where they spend money and they market the strange weird benefit like saving the world with nutrition bars because the wrapper is compostable right so that's actually something that's going on right now so i hope that helps listeners understand and and it really the challenge is that you have to you have to accept that the product is a cultural thing a cultural object and until you release it into the world and give it to people and they start using it in ordinary life it actually doesn't mean anything yet it's just it's just an idea i mean you may want it to mean something but the market's going to tell you what it means and that's a social process and that's what <laughs> this is a hard thing to explain to folks who weren't trained in social science but you know for a brand like kindbar to suddenly mean what it means today it was, that was a 20-year process and it was a social process it, it wasn't actually created at a whiteboard by anybody right so you have to let you have to let the market help you define what it is and then listen to to how it's being defined and then run with that and that is a that's a big piece of humble pie a lot of patience for <laughs> yeah. sure yeah yeah i understand that your experience is largely with consumer packaged goods but i'm wondering if mm -hmm. some of these concepts uh, that you have or best practices couldn't be transferable to other types of products or even services. What do you think about that? Oh, I totally agree. You know, I would say that anything, any service or product line where recurring revenue is part of your business strategy and part of your route to profit, the idea of understanding how to generate repeat customers and how to scale their absolute numbers, that is you know, the not-so-secret formula that's buried in my book when it comes to generating exponential growth. Because for every recurring customer in any line of business that's paying you money two times a year, five times a year, ten times a year, if you can accelerate the amount they're paying you, uh, you just don't need to create as many customers if you can accelerate how much money they're getting every year. It's, basic, it's a basic business logic, and it works in almost every industry, including B2B. 
the challenge <laughs> the challenge in my industry is that a lot of the ecosystem where founders work in interface with every day, they don't understand that and they don't care. So I'll give you an example. Most of the people who start food and beverage businesses that are selling in retail, like a, a physical store, they're going to have to go through a third-party distributor. They look at their sales based on what they're selling to this trucking company. And that trucking company only cares about moving volume, right? They have no understanding of anything I just talked about in the last 15 minutes. <laughs> and they don't care. So if you're a founder and that's your customer, is a trucking company who sells, who moves your thing to a health food store or something, <laughs> You're going to have a very strange view of the universe because they're going to keep calling you and, telling, and feeding you their view of the universe, which is, when do I get more cases? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so you might decide, and I meet a lot of people who get sucked into this in consumer packaged goods, any customer is a good customer. I just need to sell more cases because then my revenue goes up. And, you know, that's true. The problem is that if you sell with that mind, if you run your business with that mindset, and I've done the research in, in cash registry data, the odds are pretty high if that's your only motive and that's the only principles you're using. You are going to find yourself on the shelf in a totally inappropriate retailer. It won't move. And you may even have to buy back the inventory. You, you may go out of business in the buyback process financially, by the way. <laughs> so um, it's because if you spent your cash on something else in the meantime, it's important that you don't think that every customer is valuable if you're going to be a cash strap startup in the world that I'm in. And honestly, probably in a lot of startups that don't have a couple million dollars in seed capital, which is most of them. You know, they're using their own, their own family money or they're using maybe an angel check for 100000 200000 It's not a lot of money in my industry. I mean, that, that disappears really fast. If your view of the universe is I just move more cases of my product and I don't care who the customer is down the line consuming it, the odds are very good that you're going to have a dead business before it even gets to half a million in, in sales. And that's actually where most brands in CPG die. They don't even get to a million dollars. And part of it is they don't sell strategically. They think every customer is valuable. And the reality is if you're doing something that's new to say food culture that has legs, most people don't want it and they never will. Most people in America don't want a kind bar. It's a minority of Americans that have created this billion dollar business still. <laughs> and that it's based on people like me who buy two cases a month. It's not based on people buying one bar randomly. So I hope that math makes sense. Well, I understand that the math is very important, but let's say you've got somebody who's bootstrapping their right. business and maybe their intent is not to go national or global let's say it's a consumer package good, and they're happy with local, they're happy with regional to get started, yeah. to, to test their market and so forth. And maybe they put something out there and, uh, you know, like you said, it was a founder who was married to their idea and they thought if they create <laughs> it, people will come. And yeah, a few people came, but not that many. What do you recommend for somebody in a situation like that to give their brand a facelift? Do they have to totally rebrand? What advice can you give us? So I, I always tell people in that situation to start with the evaluation of the product formula. And, you know, when you're in food and beverage, you really have to get some honest feedback from <laughs> strangers, which may take a little legwork, but it should be possible in today's internet age, get feedback on, on the sensory, what they call the sensory experience. Because often, if you really are selling at a trickle, 
and you went into a decent retailer where people go and look for new things, like a specialty food store, the odds, in my experience, are very high. There's something wrong with how it tastes. And I know that sounds ridiculous because you're, you're thinking, well, how could a food innovator create something bad tasting? But it happens all the time. So that's why I, I tell people that they've got to look there first. Make sure that the thing is, it has that Frito-Lay sensory excellence. In other words, you could feed it to your Uncle Larry. He doesn't care about health. Right? And they're going to love it just on the taste. You've got to have that in today's market to get that initial traction going. After that, I think you can look at things like, what is the symbolism on the package? Are you really actually telling, <laughs> are you selling obscurity or what I like to call weirdness? Or are you selling something very subtle like the kind, like kind bar, which is basically just trail mix in a rectangle. That's all it is. There's nothing else. <laughs> um, but no one had sold that in a bar form. Well, let me ask you a dumb question. I hear what you're saying, but like the kind bar example, you're saying it's nothing more than trail mix in a rectangular form. Well, that makes it pretty easy to knock off, doesn't it? You would think so. The problem is there. The yeah. problem it is conceptual. Like if we're think, if we're sitting at home, imagining these things, it seems true. But the kind bar actually was an R and D technical nightmare to manufacture at commercial scale. So sometimes, and there's many brands that are scaling. Which, which are just like that right now, like Spindrift, it's a sparkling water brand. It's got a very subtle formulation change. There is no natural flavor added, which is a chemical extraction from plants made in laboratories that simulates the flavor of whatever you want, like blueberries or strawberry. They remove that and they just put fruit juice in, right? So again, another, another example, a very small formulation twist. No seltzer plant in the United States can make that product when they start it. I won't go into all the reasons, but there also was no nutrition bar manufacturing facility for hire that could make the kind bar. <laughs> so, so that's why it hadn't been done. So you're talking about manufacturing scale. You got it. So, so that is the, that's the world I'm in, which is when you want to get your thing to go from a local city to a region of the country, and you want to go from you know half a million dollars of sales to five and ten million. You're actually now going to have to hire a contract manufacturer in food and beverage to get that many units produced. So even, you, you know, even if you don't want to become the next kind bar and be that big, you're going to have to do commercial production in a product-driven business that gets past $5 million bucks. Being able to create an innovation that is very easy for the consumer, the right consumer, to say, wow, that is innovative. Yes, I've been waiting for a seltzer water, a sparkling drink, very low calorie, with absolutely no evidence. And Spindrift's the only one in the United States. There's probably 5 to 10 to 20 million people ready for that right now. Some are discovering it as we talk. So that's the challenge is that I call it not over-innovating, so that when you get to the point where you're going to have to hire contract facilities to make your product at scale, that you have something that's doable, or they could modify their equipment to make it happen. The folks that over-innovate in my industry, they tend to run into the wall of, I can't ever, I can never get beyond the artisan chocolate shop, right? Because I am. Who makes it by hand, right? <laughs> if you right. can't get industrial machinery driven by computer processors to make it, you can't really scale in my industry at all. That is where there's this balance between innovation that is commercializable versus entertains you. And the commercial innovation, it's that very large audience that's sitting out there waiting for your thing. They may not know it, and it's going to be your job to design the packaging, symbolism, and everything else so that they get it. 
and they see it on the shelf and they make that connection. And when it's done really well, you don't actually have to use a lot of marketing. It's fascinating. I mean, it literally will, will just explode on the, off the shelf when it's all aligned. Well, that's great. The thing is, you got to get those stars yep. aligned. What would you say are one or two best practices an innovator needs to focus on in order to get to that stage? I think the first thing is you need to sample your product. Sampling. And, and in a service business, you should do that as well. I did it. I used to give free one-hour sort of calls. And I was just, I was honestly trying to understand my client base. I wasn't actually trying, I wasn't trying to actually sell them, like convince them that I'm a hotshot consultant. I just, and it's the same thing with sampling. Give them a small version of your bar. Give them a free one. In the giving process, and there, here's a social science thing, they will feel obligated to give you some kind of feedback, either then, which is not the right time, but later. If you can give away what you have, a sample of what you are selling, get them on email, get them in some kind of a digital relationship, and then ask for the feedback later. That works really, really well. I think you've probably experienced that. I know I have when people, you ask for people's feedback, they're shocked usually, especially if it's something like a, as mundane as a soda bottle or something. <laughs> um, they like to give it, especially if they were one of the early adopters, they like to give that feedback. This is when you begin that dialogue I talked about earlier, where you can iterate, figure out, oh, Wait a minute, I don't have an anti-inflammatory nutrition bar. I have, I have like the next greatest weight maintenance thing. They'll tell you if you listen. Well, yeah, people people like to give their opinions, you know? Sometimes even where they're not asked for it. That's why social media <laughs> is what it is. <laughs> well, that would be a great, yeah, that, that's not the, the, the right environment because right. there's no, there isn't really... Sociologically, there isn't a feeling of reciprocity with some amorphous group of strangers in some social media public sphere. But I think right. when you have handed it to them and handed them a card or something where it said, hey, go to our Instagram or sign up for an email list, get them on an email, drip email campaign. Now you're in a relationship. It may not be super intense, but if you're selling something new and they sign up for your email in 2021, I think they like you. I mean, <laughs> no, no, nobody wants more email. So if they even signed up, that's a great sign, right? So it's yours to screw up. So I, I tell people early on, you've got to have the bandwidth to engage in that dialogue early on because that's when you're going to figure out, oh, wow, I founded this for X, but my consumers are telling me that this brand is really about Y. Exactly. Besides the sampling, what would be another best practice? I think that one of the ones I talk about is building a strategic plan early on in the life of, this, of your startup where even though you're small and it seems arrogant, you're setting annual revenue targets. You are literally writing down some kind of hypothesis about how you're going to achieve them executionally. I don't even care how crude it is in the beginning, but if you don't write those things down, it's super easy to get to the end of the year. And after a couple glasses of wine, declare that it was a great year, even when your revenue didn't go up or it even went down. <laughs> you know? And it's like, you've got to create some kind of minimal system, and I like numbers, that keeps you accountable to achieving your goals. And I can tell in my industry, even if you don't want to become a big business, I think that's great. If you want to, if you want to talk out of 10 million, hallelujah, that's great. That's really hard too, right? <laughs> in my business, the, the capital expenditures are so high that you, most people aren't making any money hand until they spout a half a million to three quarters of a million dollars in sales every year. And so they're literally losing money. 
so I, you know, you do, there's a, there's an initial in, in, um, almost a mandate from the heavens that you've got to get that initial scale going or you, you're really, really going to, you're going to flame out. Now your book, your, your book, Ramping Your Brand, what would be the one thing that you'd want readers to take away from your book? Make sure that in the early years, you are iterating and finalizing a product line that is just incredibly memorable in your category or space. And that memorability is all the way from the usage experiment experience to the packaging, to how you interact with customers in email, to marketing, to events. Um, memorability is basically the biggest weapon you have against incumbent businesses. If you can be 10 times more memorable and remarkable than a bag of Lay's potato chips, which is pretty boring, even though it sells well, you're going to have the DNA to grow well and, and survive. If you're just doing like, I hate to say it, a me too of someone else's brand, that you saw in a store and you don't work that hard at, at making all those touch points memorable for people, it literally won't get remembered. And, and until you get burned into people's minds, they don't even remember to come back and buy you again. Right. So that's why it's so important. You don't have a big advertising budget to just continually remind people you're relying on their brains, their, literally their memory to tell them to go and buy you. So that's what I tell. That's what I mentioned in the introduction of the book. And I, I talk about it all the way through. Wow. It really boils down to the, the whole package of the, I don't mean physical package, but right. the entire customer experience from beginning to end. Yeah, unfortunately it does. You know, optimizing is, is what the best in class folks do. And that's why I talk about something called focus early on in the book, because you can imagine how complex that would be for just like one thing, like a nutrition bar with five flavors. Imagine if you listened to the wrong consultant who told you, ah, no, you need, you're building a platform. So you should go into five other categories. So you'll be all over the store. <laughs> it's going to unravel into total chaos pretty quick. Yeah, and your cash flow is going to be splattered all over the floor. So anyhow, yep. James, thanks so much for sharing. These, these really are interesting insights. And I think I'd love to share a bottle of wine with you and, and talk about some of these some more, especially the you know, the, the social science aspect, because understanding the basis of that and what those triggers are, I think is really mm -hmm. the key to making these other things successful. So if you're listening and you'd like to contact Dr. James Richardson, learn more about his book, Ramping Your Brand, his business, his consulting practice, Premium Growth Solutions, or his, he's got a podcast too, Startup Confidential. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? I'll talk to you about that separately. But <laughs> you can find that information in the show notes at businessconfidentialradio.com. And if you found today's program helpful, by all means, tell your friends, let them be successful too, and leave a positive review on your podcast app or at lovethepodcast.com forward slash business confidential. And yes, you've been listening to Business Confidential now with Hannah Hassel-Kelchner, and I wish you have a great day and an even better tomorrow.